0: I'm Allison Bukowski, and this is The Customer X-Files. I'm delighted to bring my years of experience supporting, building, and leading customer marketing and advocacy initiatives to the amazing community that supported me throughout my career. I've always been committed to moving CMA programs from transactional to engaging, multidimensional experiences, and this podcast is no different. Each episode, I'm joined by an incredible thought leader within the customer marketing and advocacy space, generous enough to share insights, knowledge, and experience with all of us, the Customer X community. Brought to you by the PeerSpot network, nothing is off limits. If it has to do with the customer experience, we want to talk about it. And just as our industry continues to evolve, so will this podcast. Several days after each session, we'll invite all of you to join in a live Q and A session with our guest. So let's get started. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Customer X-Files. I'm Alison Bukowski, and I'm very excited today to have Mr. David Soroka as my guest on this episode. I've gotten to know David over the past several months, and I will say I'm constantly in awe of his transparency, expertise, and experience. He's pretty much a straight shooter, and I find his approach to customer marketing and advocacy very refreshing. And for those who don't already know David, he is the CEO of Point of Reference. David brings a unique perspective and over 20 years of experience in sales, marketing, and professional services roles. He's worked with hundreds of customers and organizations to build out customer reference strategies and experiences and makes it his mission to help sales and marketing professionals realize the full potential of customer advocates. And David is also an avid skier. So good thing that he's located in Colorado, a motorcyclist and a musician, which I did not know, which is why your icebreaker is going to have to do with music today, David. But first, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me.
1: Ah, thank you for the invitation. Looking forward to it.
0: So, you know better than anyone that reference management once sparked all this enthusiasm and had a large hand, of course, in the growth of customer advocacy programs and initiatives. Though at times, it sometimes faces some new challenges and barriers to success. And you and I have certainly spoken at length about some of those challenges and how we can evolve this practice to not only address reference management, but also customer advocacy as a whole. So that's what we're going to talk about today for the majority of our conversation. But everyone knows that I'm a big believer in people before professionals. So as as a music guy and volunteer as much, I just learned that you play multiple instruments, but favorite place in the world to take in a concert
1: that is so easy because we have it here in Colorado and that is Red Rocks the outdoor amphitheater and it's kind of like a spiritual uh, experience for I think a lot of bands that come through Colorado but also for people who go to their first show there in fact frankly I've been to I don't know well over 100 shows there and I never get tired of it it's just beautiful you're surrounded by nature and it has a great sound. And if you're high up and not seeing the band so well, you see the city behind. And if you're down close, of course you see the band, it's great. So, and that's where I try to be. And those first 10 rows whenever I can.
0: That That's awesome. It, I wonder if it's similar, I haven't been, but I wonder if it's similar to Alpine Valley in Wisconsin. So I grew up in Wisconsin, similar kind of outdoor, amphitheater kind of space and I've I've been to a couple of shows there but others have described it almost like a religious experience there's just something about it to especially well a lot of those folks the Grateful Dead used to play there very frequently and so I'm not really sure if it's truly that or if it you know
1: might be something else talking by other things yeah sure maybe but
0: but still maybe
1: fish is playing there now four nights in a row
0: That, that, yeah, Dave Matthews Band or Fish or one of those, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. Let's talk about customer references. Cause I don't know anybody who knows more about this topic than you. And like so many things in our industry, references continue to evolve. Just share to, to kick us off. Why, why do you think this is? And why do you think it matters? This evolution of customer references?
1: Well, um, when you talk about evolution, I don't think the basic premise of a reference has changed, but where it is used has changed. We see much more revealing of reference experiences, customer experiences in general, earlier in the sales cycle than ever. You know, we've been doing this for almost 20 years. And so uh, in the beginning, there wasn't nearly the transparency, like giving um, unfiltered customer viewpoints, either in podcasts or in printed interviews or quotes or whatever the form might look like. So uh, this all goes hand in hand with buyers, I think, doing a lot more of their research before engaging with a salesperson. So it makes total sense. You want to um, catch somebody's attention while they're just perusing with the best customer stories you can muster so that you get them to the engagement stage and hopefully on to opportunity and Closed one, so that part has changed, but I think the general nature of needing to talk to a peer for all the obvious reasons that continues to be pretty much the same as it has been over the years. I think the um, what what used to be considered a testimonial, if you've noticed, it's become much more open, and it's okay that companies allow customers to say things that aren't all great and glowing about the relationship, but maybe how that provider you know, fix the situation, how they recovered, and that's more authentic anyhow.
0: You took the word out of my mouth. I was just gonna say, I think that speaks to authenticity, which has always existed, but it's really exploded, you know, in the last few few years that we're after that authentic voice, which, you know, I think, you know, to your point, I think that's why videos and things like that. So do you do you feel that references have changed in the formats that they've taken on
1: yeah and then to the tolerance level that a vendor for instance is comfortable with in terms of that transparency i think that's changed we saw that happen early on our you know our business started with recording customers talking about their experience like a due diligence interview and it was a hard sell this is you know 2003 to 2005 6 somewhere in there and then YouTube came along and there became more what we know as a customer generated content, you know, but it, you couldn't control it as a vendor, right? So you had to accept it and embrace it and make use of it. And um, so our interviews were more acceptable two, three years into it than they were when we started because it, it dawned on marketers that this is the way it's going to be. And there's no putting it back in the bottle.
0: Yep. And and you and I have we talked a little bit about that uh, when we spoke at the Advocate Marketing Academy conference. You know, you were very much ahead of the curve, and it must be sort of interesting to kind of watch, like, okay, everything comes full circle. And there were a lot of questions. Um, you know, I talked about this topic, and you sat on a panel discussion, and that's why our conversation today. I had joked, the type A personality in me is a little. It's not as coherent and plotted out, but these are all questions that we're going to talk about today that came from customer marketers and I and reference managers, and I think that they deserve a little time in the spotlight because I'm sure there are others that are interested in in your responses. Um, and perhaps starting with just the way that references are positioned, right? So let's we'll, we'll talk about internal positioning in a second, but I'm talking about externally with customers. Um, I've talked about how I wish the term reference it would go away. And I don't actually mean that we're gonna, you know banish it from the lexicon, but I mean how we position it as a beneficial experience to customers. And I'm curious on your thoughts on that, on that topic about positioning, serving as a reference and how you do that with customers to get them on board.
1: So how they talk to their customers about being an advocate in some way? Right,
0: yeah, becoming mm-hmm. an advocate or, or becoming a reference so that it's, it's not viewed as just completely transactional. transactional.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, well, you know, what I learned early on when we were doing those interviews with our customers' customers is that 90% of the time, the reason that that customer w- was willing to speak publicly is because of the relationship they had with their account executive or their, This was, was pre-CSMs even, but I think the same applies. I think generally, this is a very personal service, if you will, and that there is a person-to-person connection that made it possible. So, um, rather than try and talk a customer into being a reference in some way, it seems more natural to me to understand the relationships that your internal your your peers have with those customers and identify the best place to start there. But I'm not opposed at all to the idea of, in some form, asking customers directly about their experience, and then, you know, for those that answer in the in the appropriate way, to follow up with them about being uh, an advocate in some fashion, whatever they're comfortable with.
0: And I I agree with you that it's relationships that's at the heart of I think all reference management and and advocacy efforts. Um, you know I've talked a little bit about the value proposition to to customers and you know making it a mutually beneficial experience. Have you? Seeing that where customers serving as a reference are are also getting something out of those conversations. Oh, for sure.
1: Yeah. Now, if you want to talk about a change over let's say the last decade, that certainly has been one of them. I remember in the early days, it was a lot of like logoed merch that was given out to thank somebody for doing something. Um, and it has become, at least in some cases, more of an opportunity to create a tighter bond with the customer. And so that would be some things that, you know, will be very familiar, giving that customer greater access to executives, giving them uh, an avenue to provide more influence on the direction of the product. Um, Or I know of some companies that do special events. They might invite an analyst in or an industry expert to talk about something and invite those customers that are considered The advocate core to attend and that's not offered to the general customer population so the more of that i think that you do the more it feels more mutual and there's a greater investment and it feels like a friendship developing Mm -hmm. which is very different
0: and investment is a good is a good word for that it's you know, something that is, even though it's intangible, I've certainly seen that like the ROI on the intangible investments, like all the things you mentioned, events and, you know, access to executives, et cetera, goes a lot further than here. here's another water bottle, right? Or right. a, a logo t-shirt. Uh, right. So flipping the script a little bit and talking about internally and I could, as much as I'm a human to human relationships person, I could also talk about process all day long. And I know that's something that you and I had talked about, uh, internal stakeholders and one of the things that tends to make my heart hurt a little bit is reference managers and advocacy professionals not setting expectations with stakeholders. We, we've talked about that. Why Why is setting expectations so important And then second part to that question, what are the most important ones to set?
1: Mm. Well, let's see. The first thing that, um, I'd break it into two sides. So there's the stakeholders and the expectations you set there. And I'm gonna carve out of that the executive team. Um, The executive team, I think, needs to have the expectation that this, that when you implement a product for a process that already exists, like reference management, you're gonna have some change. It's required. People have been doing things a certain way forever. And I'm sure that there are still many salespeople out there that have never known it any different than when I need a reference, I just go trolling around my peers and maybe the CSMs to find someone and that's just it. It's the way I've always known it, it's the way it's always gonna be. So the executives are so key in that and setting the expectation that this isn't gonna necessarily be like flipping a light switch. Um, There has to be certain communications that we're going to need your participation in, we're going to need opportunities to talk to your, um, the teams, and whether that's for training or that's just simply feedback, gathering or whatever it might be, but it's going to take a little time out of meetings or whatever the avenues available are. So that's the expectation I would set there, like this can't be successful unless you're part of this. We all have to be in alignment, swim in the same direction. And then for stakeholders, I think it's a matter of explaining what the benefits are, of course. It's the what's in it for me. And understanding that while it might not look like a a quick win for them, it will be a long-term win for them to be able to protect customers from being overused, uh, to making sure that you have the best pool of references, that you have the best coverage for the different opportunities you're trying to satisfy reference requests for, You know, that stuff has to be, you know, repeated multiple times so that they get the picture. And then the the management side comes in again when you're talking about changing behaviors on a day-to-day level. And that's, you know, identifying people who are working outside the system and getting them back into the system.
0: And when it comes to executives, because I know this is a question that I'm asked frequently, and you're obviously an executive yourself, what have you found resonates the most to get that buy-in? Um, I love that you called out, hey, this is a time commitment, and if you want to do it, do it right and be involved. Um, how have you been able to kind of accelerate that buy-in from the C-suite?
1: Yeah, that's this is super critical. You, you can't just go to executives and say, hey, you authorized the purchase of this technology and a salary to support it or multiple salaries. Uh, and it's going to take a little time, and we need your support. That that alone doesn't do it. What you need to do is very carefully and uh, precisely correlate your activities to the C-suites. And so every company has a set of growth goals. And it might be new areas they're breaking into, new geographies, a new product. It might be more of the same. I mean, it, it's fairly There's four basic categories that growth goals come into. And you have to understand which ones are your companies for the coming, maybe it's quarter, maybe it's year, uh, maybe it's five years. And you need to constantly show that what your program is doing is supporting those goals. If my growth goal is to break into a new new segment, it's maybe a, a new group of users. Um, in a company. we've been working in this department, but now we want to break into this department. Well, then you need stories to support that for sales and for marketing. So you need to cultivate your advocates in that particular segment and have them ready to go, you know, pre-qualified. And then you need to be able to show how many you fulfilled in a certain period of time and what influence they had on revenue and be able to show that to the executives. because otherwise executives see, programs like this and others and even in customer marketing in general as nice to haves or yeah we should have it my cmo friend at xyz company is a big believer and i trust that person so i'm going to do it i'm going to say we need it here in our company too that's not really buying their heart you know that gets their heads but doesn't really get their heart in it they need to feel like there is a direct relationship between the program's activities and what they're measured by And I don't think a lot of program managers get to that point.
0: You have to show them that they have a stake in the game, right? Um, That they're invested, which of course they are literally invested, but also invested in the success of the program, which leads me to another topic that had a lot of questions actually uh, at the conference that, that you and I both attended. And that was this concept of a governance council. And yeah. what I mean by that is leveraging key stakeholders, typically senior leaders within an organization, to make sure, you know, you, yes, you have the buy-in, that you're giving those updates, that you're continuously aligning, right? That your goals are aligning to their goals. Um, but I'm just curious, your, your thoughts on establishing a governance council, you know, in general, And then we'll kind of get into the weeds a little bit, as far as which roles do you think are most important to have a seat at the table?
1: Yeah, well, as a result of those conversations we had, uh, we've actually incorporated that component into uh, our launch playbook, which has a lot of the soft side of rolling a new project, a new tool out to to a company. And so we were always big on the stakeholder advisory board. So that would be made up of sales marketers, you know, maybe some events, people, PR, whoever, um, that are most uh, going to benefit from a program. And once we had that conversation, I was like, yeah, you know, this is the problem in a lot of cases is that the, in our case, the system gets launched, it had all the support of executives in terms of funding, and maybe they did an announcement to the whole company, this program was coming, and then they wander off and do what they normally do. They're like, they forget about the program. The same with communities and other aspects of our world. And there needs to be this regular touch point. And I think that that made all the sense in the world to me as I thought about having, you know, most of the programs are in marketing. So the VP of marketing or the CMO should be in on this. The chief revenue officer ought to be one of those advisory council members. Um, Probably the um, VP of sales should be in it. And there should be a a monthly touch point, maybe it becomes a little less frequent over time, or maybe it stays at monthly, but it's like, here's what's going on. Here's what we've accomplished, supporting your individual goals and therefore the company goals. And here's where we're having some issues. You know, we're not getting support from this region of the country when we're asking for nominations or we're not seeing as much participation over here in this group. And they're still doing things in the spreadsheets and, you know, that kind of thing. But they need to be brought in in a timely fashion because if you wait for a a quarter a year and then bring it up it's like it's too late (laughs) things have already continued on the way they shouldn't have and the impact of of a tool like ours or others just doesn't have a chance
0: and it's and it's a lot harder to you know like to your point to put it back into you know the bottle you mentioned earlier so if you can start Mm -hmm. off on the right the right foot, that's definitely the way, the way to do it. And I have, uh, actually found it quite successful in getting traction and also resources, right. As a program grows that if I've got the ear of the people that are on my council and they like what you're doing, it's a lot easier to ask for the purse strings to be loosened. Um, when rather than having to like come at it with no prior knowledge of what you're doing whatsoever.
1: And they can't get chopped. They can't go back in time and like, oh, give me the, uh, you know, the CliffsNotes on, on the progress of the program for the last year. You know, you, you weren't there long for the ride. You didn't see exactly what went well, what didn't go well. So, you, you know, it's, you're too divorced from the whole thing. It's so important to keep asking the question, like, why should my executive care? Why should why should he or she care about what my program is doing? That goes for any program in a company, I think. And you got to be able to answer that,
0: and and answer it quickly, and to have data to back that up. Um, I'm yep. curious now that you know you've started doing this, what what kind of cadence are you suggesting for something like this? And are you seeing an acceleration of either program launch or adoption? By having something like a governance council in place,
1: Uh, I think what uh, happens is you get everybody thinking the same way. Like there's a lot of head nodding going around a table, rather than these people aren't really aware of what's you know what's needed. And this group is is banging their fists on the table, saying we really need to do this. And there's like you know disconnect. Everybody's kind of going in different directions. So by meeting on a regular basis. Uh, I would say, you know, I'm thinking more in in our uh, world, but you start by meeting probably every two weeks for a couple of months to make sure things are on the right path and then you can probably drop back to monthly. And in some cases it might go quarterly, it just depends. But, um, and we've worked with some really large organizations where the program manager might be, you know, uh, five or 10 levels beneath the CEO. Well, you're probably not going to get the CEO ever involved in these things in a company that size, but in a smaller company, who knows, you might, you might get that or you certainly would get the people that report to him. So you got to, of course, adjust and adapt to whatever your environment looks like.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's a good point too. And having been in organization, very large organizations and then smaller organizations, it's, I don't like to get too hung up on, on the titles. What I care about Uh are who are the people that are going to advance my agenda and be the right people to have around the table for the program and the success, you know, and the maintenance of the program. So that's yeah.
1: Politics comes in too, right? I mean, you (laughs) might have somebody who, uh, who it may, maybe you would never guess would be the right person, but it turns out they have influence because they used to work with so-and-so in the last company. You know, they've been working with them for 10 years now. And so maybe they're the right ones. I've heard, I've had things like, you know, chief of staff uh, people be really influential and useful for uh, this kind of a governance board. You wouldn't necessarily think they're the right people, but they got the ear of whoever their chief of staff mm-hmm. too.
0: And if they're an internal champion for you, grab them and hold on with both hands, regardless of where they sit, to your point within the organization. um it's that has happened to me before as well, where actually it was someone within our human capital group. And I thought, how how does this? It's a weird situation, but they loved they loved the work, and they had the ear to your point of others. so i I kind of have my, keep a list, right? Of mm-hmm. the people that are willing to sing your praises. Um, and yeah, this, we, we could do a whole nother, David, on internal <laughs> champions and, and things yeah. like that. What, what about the fact that I don't think people think about it and nobody tells you when you come in to manage a reference program or you're doing customer advocacy work that you also signed up to be a teacher. You're now an educator, and and you're constantly needing to educate, right? There's new salespeople, there's there's new CSMs that are coming in. What advice would you give to professionals that are in this space and you constantly have to educate, but you need to balance it with your workload and maintain your sanity?
1: Well, uh, partnering with other folks who are involved in the ongoing systematic training is good. Of course, like sales enablement, if you've got that kind of a team or you've got an actual training group that deals with onboarding of particularly salespeople, you know, bringing them up to speed. I, I've worked with companies where the program manager really wanted to personally lead the session in onboarding, you know, maybe it's a half an hour or whatever, um, and others where they just basically did train the trainer of the people who were delivering the information. So either one can work again, based on your bandwidth and comfort level with all that, but, um, but I heard a term or I read a term in a blog post maybe a year ago now, and it was all about everboarding, and I thought, that's really the paradigm shift. You know, we all want to think of things as a one one-time-and-be-done-with-it situation, even... You know, launch this reference program. Okay, we've done that. Now we're going to go back to our other jobs. Like it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in lead gen. It doesn't work that way in digital marketing or anywhere else. Why should it work that way in customer marketing? So Everboarding just sets the expectation, as you were talking about earlier, sets the expectation for everybody that this is constant. There will be churn. There will be people who were maybe selling to government and now they're selling commercial and they need references much in a much different way in a different cadence. And they never really learned to follow the process that was set up for the commercial folks. So they need training. And there'll be people who um, just brain drain. You know, They just forgot something between a need for finding a reference or whatever the solution might be. And a month has gone by. So you should offer something on an open Attendance kind of basis monthly. We, you know, a lot of our clients call them office hours, or whatever you want to call them. But there's just an opportunity for anybody to come and ask questions. There's a a short demo of things, a discussion of how the SLAs of the program work, and and the other thing with reference management in particular is there's such an assumption that salespeople know how to use references just because because they're asked for them, but it doesn't mean they know how to use them well. It you know what they, they say know. about the word what? assume, the word assume, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ass of you and ask of me, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, I think that's something that should not be taken for granted, that you ought to um, plan on it as part of your responsibilities and like, you know, there's so many responsibilities in a reference program. That's why we do automation where it makes sense. Some things we don't believe it makes sense for, but there's a lot you can automate and that should allow you then to spend time in these areas that provide a lot more value.
0: And I love that term, everboarding. And I echo what what you said. I remember the, the first time when I was launching a reference program in a new business area, I, it was just constant and I thought I could do it. I thought I could single-handedly train every new salesperson, every new CSM. And it was all, I was doing it as one-offs and I was exhausted and Oof. I wasn't moving the needle for, I was spending 20 hours a week on the phone, just. Educating, uh, that's, I learned the hard knocks, learned the lesson the hard way, then got a little bit smarter and inserted myself into regular training sessions, right? For sales or for, for CSMs. And I encourage everyone to do that. Just get yourself a seat at, at the table and make sure you're on the agenda. And that way you can, plus it's, it it's really nice when you hit those new, those new folks that are excited and they're ready to make an impact. I saw the most nominations coming in after those, those training sessions because they're excited, right? They see the value of, of the program. Um, and and I'll also just say, it's a quick plug, but I really believe in what um, Louis and Michelle from Alterix, so past episode, what they're doing in inserting customer stories and some of the things that they've collected from customer references in their new employee onboarding just to to share the perspective of customers. What a cool way to you know, make a splash with new hires by sharing those stories and getting to have that very human element. So all that to mm-hmm. say, I think it's a win-win.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I remember a company we worked with that shared, you know, this is many years ago, but so they were mainly case studies, and they were these interviews that we were conducting, and they built um, a whole module around listening to the uh, interview, listening to the video, whatever, and being asked to pull out what alignment, what they just said, what did it align to in our value proposition? So exactly. it really does clarify that for a salesperson to hear it rather than their sales manager or the training group at onboarding, like hear it straight from the customer. It, mm-hmm. It's the same as customers talking to customers.
0: I, exactly. Customers. And it, yeah. And I love it. And I love organizations that are very intentional with that. So a shift here to... Two questions that are extremely tactical, but you'll probably smile when I ask these questions because they're asked every single time I'm at a conference, I'm having a conversation, talking to somebody about launching a a program. Here's the first one, legal barriers. They've always posed a challenge for reference managers and getting sign on or sign off. In your vast experience, what are some ways to handle some of these barriers and maybe remove them.
1: Yeah, I've got some really simple answers on this one. Uh, first of all, it depends on you know what you're asking them to do and how you're asking them to do it. So uh, this was a discussion, I don't know, 10 years ago about should we brand our program and invite customers to be in our program or should we really go more like one-off requests? Like start with reference calls and move them up to speaking at uh, events and maybe talking to analysts and whatever the path is. And there was a, a heated conversation about that. Like don't overwhelm them with becoming members of programs. Then it goes to legal. You know, do it slowly, build whatever. So there's that you know to consider. And, and consider it in the context of your company and how legal gets involved or doesn't get involved in these conversations. Uh, then there's, are they just going to be doing private one-on-one calls for the most part? Because that usually legal doesn't have much of an issue with. When things get public, then it's a whole different thing. Back in the day when we did recordings, we had a very simple approval process. Uh, I'm going to try and remember some of the bullets, but it was basically... Um, you know, do you agree that what's in this recording reflects you, your name, your title, all that stuff? Yes, I do. Okay. And are you okay with us using this in the following public ways? And the third bullet was essentially, and do you have authority to approve that? And that's all we went by. And I can't remember a case where somebody said, hey, take that down. I mean, it could, and that's okay. And you have something that says, well, this person said that they were Uh, They had the appropriate authority to approve the use of their likeness and their opinions. And so we went with that. You know, we were doing this as an intermediary between our customer and their customer who gave the interview. So uh, I would take that approach any day of the week versus, hey, can you loop in legal who probably has a two page, you know, agreement that has to be signed off on by all parties, et cetera, et cetera. Which I feel is generally overkill. This is just a relationship where one person said they could do this and if they said they could do this, we have to go by that. You know, we have to recognize that.
0: Yep. And and there's there's a bit of like you said, you have a bit of a CYA in place. Uh, but it doesn't have to be a six-page document that requires, you know, multiple parties and and red lines, and you can't even, you know, the page bleeds before you get it back, and then you've lost all your opportunities that you had where you wanted to leverage the customer. I speak from experience on that. Yeah, one. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So much uh, time can go can pass between yes, we'll do this, and it actually getting approved. If you go the super duper legal route.
0: Yes, agreed. Okay. Now, I'm sure everyone is enjoying all of the parts of the conversation today, but I have to ask the question about The Little Black Book. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's definitely the one that I hear all the time. Great. Sales has The Little Black Book of references that they keep in their back pocket. How do you do away with The Little Black
1: Book? Mm, and it's a killer. I liken it to like a vampire it just sucks the blood out of anything you're trying to do systematically (laughs) so it has to be stopped so we see the carrot and the stick side of this so you know the carrot side is can you reward for good behavior and it doesn't need to be monetary it can be recognition whatever it is so there's that part of it and then there's the stick side of it which is uh, there's consequences for not doing it. We we have a client where they're asked, the salespeople are asked to do certain tasks, whether it's nominate or make requests for a percentage of their opportunities or whatever. They have some metric and it translates to points. And those points roll into a bigger set of points for other activities like meeting certain quotas and uh, segments or uh, whatever it might be. And so if they don't get the points from the program, they may or may not get, the full commission that they they've earned in the quarter. So that's pretty severe. Most companies will get, you know, it'll be hard to get buy-in to do that, but it was pretty, I think, astute on their part. It caught everyone's attention. They understood exactly how it translated to their paycheck. And that's pretty concrete. So uh, that's part of the stick. Now there's a third piece I would enter into the equation and that is being there at the right time and place. For when someone can choose, you know, process A or process B, and I'll give you a great example. Um, um, Slack has an, a feature called auto response, and this is relatively new, but it can you can set up a listener based on phrases. And the phrases might be "I'm looking for a reference," "I need a reference," you know, whatever you come up with and whenever that phrase is detected in the channels that are specified you can have an auto response so in our case it says hey if you're looking for a reference use slash /references and that'll you know pull up the tool that we've purchased and invested in you know and make use of it um, so that's one and then we have another client whose product is a help system and they're building into the sales cycle into like you know progressing through Uh, stages in your sale, uh, help text that interjects, hey, this is a good time to interject the following customer advocacy uh, content, and here's where you go do it. So it's where you were trying to do this yourself, right, driving yourself crazy, doing, you know, learning opportunities left and right, let technology do some of that. Our system does the same thing. When when somebody changes their Stage to a particular stage has been configured in Salesforce. A message pops up: "Hey, there are references available. Yeah. Would you like to take a look at them?"
0: I, I was so just, that's cute. I, that I didn't know about the Slack um, feature, which is, I, it's a little like Big Brother, but I kind of love it as as an <laughs> <laughs> advocacy <laughs> professional. Like, yeah, I like that that can it can just kind of oh, by the way, and sometimes you also have to um uh, you know when i worked at optum we had a phrase assume positive intent right it yeah. it doesn't it doesn't always mean that they're trying to go around you know the the process that you've put into place but when you can have a reminder that's great and i was you called it out david but i was also going to say that i know you have the integrations with salesforce and i've had a lot of success with that where it's like hey here i am remember, you may need a reference at, at this point, and maybe even you want to proactively provide something at this point. So those those are nice. And I will say to your example of how do you, more of the stick versus the carrot, um, I did something similar, where once we had the program off and running and people were, they knew the process, they were excited, we were showing our value. Uh, we ended up having a business unit that we just cut off. It's like, they weren't, it wasn't being followed, the process wasn't being followed, and therefore they didn't have the support. And that, that stung for a while. So I do tell people, sometimes it's okay, right? It's a learning opportunity, you know, much like before we started recording this, we were talking about, like, first day of school was yesterday, my kid forgot her lunch, I did not bring it to her. Sometimes you just need to have the learning opportunity and let them fall. And then they'll, they'll get back up and I find they usually then come come back running and want the support.
1: Yeah. And you gave a great example at the um the academy event about uh, a reference gone bad. And you were able to use that. I would call that a form of a stick to say, "Yes, you didn't go through me. You didn't you didn't choose the approved references. It didn't go well. We lost the deal because of it." And so there's your consequence.
0: Yeah, they they used references from that little black book and two of the three that they used were no longer with the organization that they had called out. So when they did check on the references, how embarrassing. That, that person doesn't even work here anymore. Um, and it did, and that it it killed it right there. That was the yeah. end of the deal after we had gone through all the the hoops. So, you know, you got to pick which approach is, is right. But I knew I wanted to ask that that question and there's there's one other question you didn't know I was going to ask ask this question so we'll see how it goes but <laughs> i'm curious about the general concept of access to customers and i hear a lot of different answers to you know reference managers yes i have a relationship with the customers i go directly to the customers but i also hear nope i You know, I figure out which ones would would be best, but I don't speak to the customer. I'm just curious because nobody better to answer this than, than you. What are you seeing as far as typically yes, access, no? Has there been a change in that?
1: All right. So I would say it really depends on the program manager and what kind of person they are. You know, there will be some that, will not inspire confidence on the part of sales. And trust is such a big deal here. You know, When I was selling, I never had the concept of a reference manager. I did have somebody that ran sales ops that kind of played that role. And I trusted that that person was always going to handle the relationship appropriately. And until you gain that trust, you don't want them to talk to them directly. And you'll say, yeah, just come through me. Come through me. I'll always make the call. But you know, that starts to weigh on your productivity if you're getting asked a lot for that. And so you wanna give it up, but you're not gonna give it up unless you feel comfortable. So that's a really important factor of a reference program manager in particular is you really gotta know your salespeople. They have to know you. You have to project confidence. That's their job is to project confidence. So think of it that way. You have to be on their peer level in that respect. And you have to show um, some savvy in relationship management like they have to. And once you've proved that, I think you should earn the right to contact them directly. It's like, they'll say, keep me in the loop. Just keep me in the loop. I don't want to have a call with them and learn from them for the first time that they were just used as a reference yesterday or you know, that they just got a call from you this week. I want to know about those things.
0: And I think that, That's exactly why I wanted to ask you that question. It's the perfect answer, and it brings it back full circle to relationships, which is where we started at the top of this call, relationships internally and externally. And as we wrap up here, I'm curious for the group here, what is the best piece of advice that you can give to our community on any topic?
1: (sighs) Well, if, if your role involves interfacing with salespeople, really understand their world. That's so important. Like we have a tool that helps estimate potential volume, whether that's nominations or reference requests in a given period of time, but it's all based on knowing some key things about the sales process. How many times on average in a month does a salesperson need references and how many accounts are needed as part of each request? And what's the typical sales cycle? And what's the average deal size? You know, you need to really understand all those things. And I think a lot of people in on the marketing side don't feel the need, or maybe just is never impressed upon them. They can get some value from knowing those things. But I think until you know some of the specifics and how they work, not just, oh, what kind of content do you use and where, but really what's your sales cycle look like? You know, what kind of challenges do you run into and where do you run into them? In a in a way that advocates could help, you know, we'll we'll figure out the format, we'll figure out the length of that content, you know, the, the delivery mechanism. But just tell us where having good uh, advocate insights could make a real difference. Where you're getting hung up, until you really know that stuff, I don't think you can really be that effective. That's- and I think salespeople smell that.
0: Yep, I think that that's excellent advice, and it goes back to what we were just talking about with building trust and strengthening mm-hmm. relationships. It's it's a definition really of compassion. It's walking a mile in somebody else's shoes. That's the fastest way to build that trust and aligning what you can do with the goals of, you know, your stakeholders, your customers, anyone that you're trying to to help within your role. So that's, that's fabulous. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. There's so much great information here. It's it's been a pleasure. And for those of you who found this conversation as interesting as as I did, you're sitting there, you probably have more questions. Uh, Maybe you have five more questions about the Little Black Book, but you'll certainly get a chance to ask them and continue the conversation with the rest of the community. I did ask David and he agreed that we'll have one of our peer perspectives sessions, because that's my favorite part, why I decided to launch the customer X files so that the conversation doesn't end, but next time it can include you. So David, thank you again very much. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you for doing this, Allison. I speak on behalf of the community. We all appreciate these opportunities to dig a little deeper into the various aspects of our world.
0: Yep. that's That's why I love what I do and why I love this community. It's the most open group of people that I will ever have the privilege of working with. So thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the customer X-Files. Don't forget to follow me, Alison Bukowski on LinkedIn, where you'll find information about our peer perspective session, your chance to join the conversation live on each episode's topic, ask questions and network with your peers. Customer X Files is brought to you by PeerSpot. In a market full of hype, PeerSpot's Buy and Intelligence platform is where tech pros go to get practical, reliable information on enterprise technology. You work too hard to build strong customer relationships. It's time to leverage those relationships in a way that maximizes value for your organization and minimizes customer effort. PeerSpot's approach to customer-driven content empowers customer marketers and advocacy professionals that strive to achieve the gold standard within their industry. For more information, check out marketing.peerspot.com. And to keep getting this show in your podcast feed every time a new episode drops, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.